and welcome to Extra Grim, the show within a show where we delve a little deeper into the world of the Brothers Grimm. In this episode, we're going to actually be talking about the lives of the Brothers Grimm themselves. So, pop another log on the fire, sit back, relax and enjoy. Hello! Hello! Welcome to Grim Reading, where we review the Brothers Grimm's fairy tales. Normally! Why aren't we doing that now, Matt? Well, What's be- up? Because this time, Adam, we have a special episode on the life and times of the Brothers Grimm themselves. I can't wait. Matt here has done, would it be fair to say, a lot of research. Yeah, that I think it would. <laughs> I feel like I have. <laughs> and uh, I'm soon going to find out all about the life and times of the Brothers Grimm. Uh, we've talked about it for some time now. It's been on the cards, hasn't it? Yeah. It's finally arrived. It's a big story. Okay. It's okay. our biggest adventure yet, I'm going to say. And we've had, what, 52, maybe 52 yeah. stories from the Brothers Grimm so far? Yeah. So, you know, settle in. We've got, uh, we've got the fire on, don't we, Adam? Oh, it's we lovely. do. Lovely and cosy by the fire. Got a cup of tea. Yeah. I've got everything I need. I'm sat back and uh, ready to learn about the Brothers Grimm. Well, what do you already know about them? Their names. Although, to be honest... <laughs> Even that, I'm a little bit shaken, because I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce. Wilhelm, yeah. fine, got that in the bag. Okay. Is it Jacob or Jacob? Well, is it Wilhelm as well? Ah, so it's out of the bag again. <laughs> Damn it. That's a good point. At this juncture, I would already like to apologise for my pronunciation <laughs> of uh, German words and names. We're going to go with Wilhelm and Jacob. Because I that's the most sort of... Yeah, it's the most natural. Yeah. Yeah, that's about all I know about them. They are German. Yeah. They are brothers. Yeah. Their surname is Grimm. Yes, you should definitely know that. And they collected and refined uh, tales of German folklore. Slight spoiler alert okay. before we get started. You're in for a treat. <laughs> that's the spoiler. That's spoiler. I'm in for a treat. <laughs> <laughs> they lived through um, extraordinary times and they often found themselves right at the centre of huge geopolitical events. So for that reason, to make sense of their lives, we mm-hmm. have to look into the shifting politics of the era as we go. Okay. So get your history hat on, is oh, what I'm going to say. Did I bring that? Uh, oh, no, I've so. got it. I've got it. Oh, phew. Yeah, phew. Um, okay, so a lot of context. I've broken the episode down into seven chapters, charting the different stages of their lives. Wow, Okay. I'm a bit worried about doing them a disservice, especially as there aren't actually any biographies in print anymore in the English language. Right. So we're doing the world a massive favour. You're welcome. There are two of them. We're doing a biography of two people. Yeah. They had long, complex lives. But we're a light-hearted podcast. Sure. And we're also going to try and grapple with the politics. So, you know, keep, keep in mind we're kind of, you know, skimming over the surface. Yeah. It's not exhaustive. <laughs> Although it might be exhausting. We don't know. That's how we want our listeners to feel. <laughs> exhausted. Absolutely exhausted. <laughs> okay, so right. seven chapters then. Chapter one, I guess we start up. Jacob and Wilhelm, yep. the brothers Grimm, were born in what was called the Holy Roman Empire. Not ah. Germany. Interesting. To kick things off, we're going all the way back to ancient Rome. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> really? Oh, okay, yeah. okay. 
Let's get cracking. Let's go. Once upon a time. What was the Holy Roman Empire? I know one thing. It's not the Roman Empire. <laughs> That's one thing I know. Nice. How do you know that? I just know it. <laughs> I, just, I just know it. I know these things. To put it simply, the Holy Roman Empire was a hot mess. Yeah. The obligatory quote on the Holy Roman Empire is from Voltaire, mm-hmm. who famously described it as neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's none of the three things. Uh, a strange mix of circumstances led to the emergence of the Holy Roman Empire. Okay. In the year 285 AD, the Roman Empire was split into East and West. The Great Schism. The Eastern side became the Byzantine Empire. Mm-hmm which stayed strong for centuries. However, in the West, the power of Rome was slowly corroded as Germanic tribes became more powerful. Enter Charlemagne. Born in 748 AD, king of the Franks, he was a big conqueror king, taking over the vast swathes of Europe, modern France, summer Spain, Germany, northern Italy. So while Charlemagne was gallivanting around Western Europe, over in the East, a woman called Irene murdered her own son, and so became the first ever female emperor. Roman? Yeah, because it's still... I thought still, she was in the East. Yeah, but that's East, Eastern Roman Empire. Oh, so it's still... Yeah, it's still the Roman Empire. Oh, interesting. Technically. So that's happening in the East. Meanwhile, back in Rome, the Pope, Leo III, was kidnapped by his enemies and then rescued by Charlemagne's men. Leo thought, hmm, I'm not crowning a woman Roman emperor. No way. Oh, look, here's an extremely powerful king who's just rescued me. And so, on Christmas Day, 800 AD, several hundred years after the last Western Roman emperor, Uh Charlemagne was crowned Imperator Romanorum, Roman Emperor. And that is the shaky start of the Holy Roman Empire. But the institution of the Western Empire doesn't really exist anymore. Mm. Over the following centuries, the Holy Roman Empire... So the area is basically ruled by Charlemagne and the Franks, shrank back to the German-speaking parts of Europe. I was going to say, yeah. But the institution remained intact, and it slowly evolved into a mind-bogglingly complicated system (laughs) of vassalage. So you had princes, dukes, counts, knights, all independently ruling hundreds of polities and all sort of vaguely bound together under the emperor. Right. So it's... Very much sounding not like an empire. Technically not Roman either. By that point, it the only connection is that the Pope crowns the Roman em- the Holy so Roman Emperor. So you could say yeah. it is technically still holy. When the rulers all met, it was called the Imperial Diet. And this eventually became known as the Reichstag. So the Imperial Diet had various levels. The main one consisted of the electors who would eventually elect the emperor whose powers were increasingly limited. Right. This is over hundreds of years, this evolves. So basically think hundreds of independently ruled areas in essentially German-speaking lands whose rulers were technically subservient to the Holy Roman Emperor, who's head of the pile. Okay. Got it? Yeah. That is honestly the simplest possible way (laughs) to explain the Holy Roman Empire. It's really confusing. And I think that's why it's perhaps not very well known today, because it's just... So complex, and also it doesn't look like anything we have in Europe anymore. That is complicated. Got it? Though? No, just about, about enough. A I picture. Think. 
So just think, like, in what is now Germany, you just had loads of tiny little areas that are independently yeah. ruled, but kind of technically subservient sort of to the emperor. Sort as the, as the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah. It was in this political context that on January the 4th, 1785, Jacob Ludwig Karl Grimm was born to Philip and Dorothea Grimm in the town of Hanau, in the region of Hesse-Cassel, a small principality in the Holy Roman Empire. Okay. Sort of central northwest modern Germany. Central northwest. Okay, right, okay. So I've forgotten, to start with, he was the older brother. Unfortunately, he was the older brother, because the year previously, they had their firstborn son had died after a few months. Oh, okay, that's sad. A year after Jacob, Wilhelm Karl Grimm was born on February the 24th, 1786. Wow, very close in age then. Three more boys followed. Oh, wow. Karl, Ferdinand, and Ludwig. And finally, a daughter, Charlotte, known as Lot, or Lottie. Oh, that's nice. And three other boys died before they were one. Wow, I guess, yeah, infant mortality rates were very high back then. Philip Grimm, the dad, was a lawyer and town clerk of Hanau. So the kids enjoyed a comfortable upbringing in a highly religious household as part of the emergent middle classes. Okay. When the boys were five and six, their father got a promotion. He'd been appointed as Amptmann, or magistrate, in nearby Steinau. Okay. The Grimm family are moving up in the world, Adam. Yeah. The going places. So they moved to Steinau. It's a picturesque old town, castles, towers, beautiful. They move into a big old stone house. The boys have got proper teachers now. They play games, they run around the country, collect butterflies and insects. Just a lovely childhood. Sounds idyllic. Doesn't it? Yeah. Jacob and Wilhelm were noticeably bright boys as well from a young age, particularly Jacob. Apparently by age five, he could read the newspaper. imagine that just over the border though France was in the midst of the French Revolution in 1793 King Louis XVI was guillotined and Jacob read about it in the newspaper and was shocked (laughs) when he was eight (laughs) you see what's happening in France by Jove what what is happening in that country I mean war then broke out between France and nervous European powers so soldiers and armies would pass through Steinau on their way to the field. Mm-hmm. And when that happened, the boys had to stay inside. But their dad, as magistrate, spent all his time running around dealing with looting and fighting. Sounds like a stressful job. Yeah. So a lovely childhood. But it was sadly cut short. When the boys were nine and ten at Christmas time, their dad, Philip, became ill with pneumonia. Oh, on no. January the 10th, he died. Oof. So five days after turning 11, Jacob was now the man of the family. Wow. He recorded his father's death in the family Bible. And when he heard that someone in the town had said something nasty about his dad, Jacob wrote to his granddad asking if he could sue them. (laughs) Nice. So you've got this like 11-year-old boy kind of desperately just trying to fill in his father's shoes. Yeah. However, they're now essentially plunged into poverty. Mm. They have to leave the magistrate's house and live on the small pension that their mother received. So it's not looking good. No. Fortunately, their mother's sister, known as Auntie Zimmer, provided a lifeline for the Grimm family. She happened to be lady-in-waiting to the wife of the ruler of Hesse-Cassel. Right. So she's in with the royalty of the region. Yep. 
So she's doing all right, and she offered to pay for the two eldest boys to attend school in the capital city, Cassel. Or Castle. I checked the pronunciation on that. I think it's Castle. Castle. So 12 and 13 years old, the Grimm boys moved to Castle. They lived in a small room in the house of the palace cook, where they shared a bed and a little desk. So they kind of squeezed in. Yeah. And there was a lot of pressure on them to succeed and support the rest of the family. Yeah. Their mum reminded them that they weren't lucky enough to have fun with the other kids as they didn't have a father. And that <laughs> if she and the aunt died, they'd be out of school. So okay, there's a so lot just of remember, kids. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. <laughs> have a nice day. <laughs> they were also looked down on by classmates and teachers oh. due to their poverty. Even though they had come from fairly high status. Well, uh, they were middle status, okay. really. They weren't that But now rich. they're mixing with the big leagues, are they? Mm-hmm. Right, okay. Yeah. So much so that the teachers even used the informal third person when they spoke to them and spoke formally to their classmates. The teachers, however, soon became impressed with the boys, writing that Jacob was one of the most able, diligent and well-behaved pupils. So they're doing really well mm-hmm. and they're growing up. But there's a slight snag. Uh-oh. Technically, they were barred from going to university because they weren't of a high enough social class. <sighs> I, I, it's just unfathomable, isn't it? But once more, Auntie Zimmer came to the rescue. Through her, their mother wrote to Count Wilhelm, so the ruler of Hesse, who's called Count right. Wilhelm, and he granted special dispensation for Jacob to attend university. So through their contacts, wow. they've managed yeah. to wangle it. It's interesting, isn't it? Classes, social classes aren't necessarily that clear cut because they're like of a lower class, but they have connections that even other people of their class wouldn't have. Obviously yeah, yeah. use that to get ahead. Well, a lot of their life, actually, and probably more than I've included, is connections yeah. and, con- and their and network. And just sort of nepotism and, yeah. So this was just for Jacob to go to university, was it? Yes. Right, okay. At 17, Jacob went 30 miles away to Marburg University to study law. He doesn't like law, but it's the best means to support the family. Yeah. And for the first time ever, the boys are separated. Heartbreaking. University and the magic horn. Jacob is sad to be there on his own without his friends and his brother, but he's getting on with it. He soon acquired the nickname The Old Man because he took studying more seriously than the other boys. The year he left, Wilhelm suffered a severe asthma attack, which left him stuck in his room for six months with severe breathing difficulties Whoa! and this is the start of a very sickly life for Wilhelm uh, full of chronic health problems Uh, well the the crazy thing there is probably yeah you know if that was now he'd just get an inhaler and it'd be fine absolutely yeah Yeah. despite this though Wilhelm aced his studies and again his mum got him permission to go to university from the count and he soon left Castle to join Jacob in 1803 to study law some friends then also join them, and so things are starting to look up in uh, Marburg. They're getting more interested in their lectures. They're starting to socialise, but they're constantly aware of their relative poverty. So while the rich boys did what rich boys do, getting blind drunk. Of course. Horse riding. Yeah, naturally. Gambling. Yeah. Dueling. <laughs> of course. <laughs> going to tea parties. <laughs> So while they're doing that, the Brothers Grimm started a book group. Uh, Once, when asked to take a walk, go out for a walk, Jacob responded that he was going to take a walk in literature. (laughs) I'm going to stay in and read, actually. One lecturer they particularly liked was a young man called Friedrich Karl von Savini, who uh, 
would actually engage with the students. Uh-huh. Like he spoke to them. He didn't just read out of a book to them. Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? We all had uh, teachers like that, teachers that were better than the others. They started to go around his house and marvel at his impressive personal library. And this is where the brothers' lives start to take shape. Sure. So Savini was part of the romantic circle of thinkers. He loved the cultural and literary history of Germany, not just the Greek and Roman taught at the university. Mm-hmm. Round his, the boys met and befriended others with similarly crazy views. Two in particular were first the erratic, eccentric poet Clemens Brentano mm-hmm. and uh, a suave Prussian nobleman and writer, Achim von Arnim. Now, these two, Clemens and Achim, were very excited about a book they were writing, a collection of German folk songs. Oh, you're Ooh, almost happy exciting. there. Can you guess what it's called? Any ideas? No, I'm not even going to guess. The Boy's Magic Horn. Uh, it's n- nothing funny about that. Das Narben Wunderhorn. So the, the Boy's Wonderhorn. Oh, yeah. Um, it's a book that arguably kick-started the craze in uh, folklore stuff. Right. In late 1804, Savini galloped off to Paris on a research trip to the National Library, the Bibliothèque Nationale. Mm-hmm. He, reali- he soon realized he needed an assistant, and he invited Jacob along to help. Why don't you come help me out in Perfect. Paris? And a very excited Jacob arrived in Paris just weeks after a certain Napoleon Bonaparte was crowned emperor in Notre Dame. Uh-oh. Just an interesting side note. Wow. How old is he now, roughly? Jacob, 1804. Uh, he's, he's like in his early 20s. Okay. He's loving the access to the bibliotheque, where he researched a lot of Reynard the Fox literature. Of he, course. He loves Reynard the Fox. <laughs> you can learn more about Reynard the Fox in our Fox Quadrilogy. You can, and there is the Fox Quadrilogy, but there's also the wedding of Mrs. Fox, which yeah. I know from that episode is Jacob's favourite fairy tale. Yes. And you're, t- you're just explaining to me the origins of this. Yeah, he likes the, the foxes. A good foxy tale. As much as he's enjoying looking into foxes, he misses Wilhelm. Aww. From Paris, he wrote, If at any time in the future one of us should be sent away, the other must give notice at once. We are so accustomed to being together that the mere thought of separation causes me deep distress. Oh, that's so sweet and wholesome. After ten months of copying out old medieval manuscripts, Jacob headed back taking several detours to avoid Napoleon's troops. Wow. The two brothers then headed home to Castle. Jacob decided he didn't need to do his final exams, and he managed to find a job as a secretary in the Hessian War Office. So, like, a job in the ministry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't like the uniform and the wig um, (laughs) that he had to wear, and it was badly paid. But it's finally an income for the family. Yeah. But he's in the War Office. It's 1806. And Napoleon is on the move. Uh-oh. Occupation and fairy tales. Okay, it's history hat time, Adam. Okay, I've got it. Napoleon defeated Austria at the Battle of Otzelitz in 1805 mm-hmm. and became the undisputed dominant force in Europe. Yep. On the 6th of August, 1806, the Holy Roman Emperor, Francis II, declared the empire at an end... And after 1,006 years of existence, the Holy Roman Empire was dissolved. Wow, that was a long empire. Yeah. Although it's not an empire. (laughs) Or holy or Roman. Oh, yeah. Um, That's the thing about the Holy Roman Empire. It's a really weird system, but it was... Something about it it worked. It had legs. Yeah. 
But it's over. And on November the 1st, French troops marched into Castle. Like unchallenged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Napoleon's in charge. He's the big boy. Count Wilhelm fled, along with his wife and the Grimm's aunt. So Napoleon's in charge. He reorganized what was the Holy Roman Empire into the Confederation of the Rhine. Hesse was renamed the Kingdom of Westphalia. It's been merged with a few neighboring territories. Okay. And Napoleon then installed his own younger brother, Jerome, as King of Westphalia. So the Grimm's now live in a new country yeah. ruled by Napoleon's brother. Whoa. Jacob quit his job in the war office in disgust. He doesn't want to keep working no, there when it's supplying French troops. Wilhelm had by this time passed his exams, and now the two were unemployed. Things are about to get worse, though, Adam. In May 1808, their mother, the heart of the family, yeah. Dorothea Grimm, died unexpectedly. No! Jacob is only 22 and is now the oldest in the household, with all his brothers and That's sister. That's tough, yeah. Yeah. Their father's pension now stopped, and for a few months the family had literally no income, living off neighbours' charity and eating one meal a day. Oh, dear. With the help of a friendly recommendation whispered in the king's ear, Jacob secured the position of royal librarian in the palace library. Oh, that's a, that's a high spot. It's basically the king's personal library, but Jerome Bonaparte, he doesn't care about books. Yeah. And Jacob was paid 10 times his previous salary in the war office, and his only instruction was to write Library of the King on the door. So he's literally just alone in this gigantic library wow. with 15,000 books in it. Wow. And he now could spend all his time studying and researching. <laughs> this is perfect for him. So, during the early days of French occupation, the Grimm's began to compose the first version of Kinder und Hausmerken, or the Grimm's fairy tales. Yeah, wow. Folk tales had been published before, but the Grimm's approached the task with a strict academic rigour. The Grimm's believed that if you adulterated the tales, it meant that you lost the spirit of the tale, the natural poetry of the tale, which we talked about before. Yep, yep, we have. They absolutely love poetry. Wilhelm once wrote, Poetry is life itself, captured in its pure form and contained in the music of language. Essentially, their philosophy is, through language, you find the essence of life itself. Mm -hmm. So in German folk stories, the essence of the Germans, the German spirit. Yeah. So that's, that's not an uncommon way of thinking. I think there'd be lots yeah. of people these days that would feel like that. They're like, yeah, art, yeah. in general, is a way at yeah. finding truth. or find, mm -hmm. like That's a best way of understanding the world around us. So that's, that's, I can understand that. Absolutely. And they were um, into language as a kind of key to, to history and to life, the universe and everything. Yeah. And in their own way, they're kind of resisting French occupation with these stories. Yeah. Fostering a sense of German identity. Yeah. So they're now on the hunt for stories. Contrary to popular belief, the brothers didn't really travel around Germany. Mainly, they enlisted the help of their friends and neighbours. This could be a whole special episode in itself, the sources yeah. of the stories. But the headline is, they gathered a pool of contributors, primarily from four families. Oh, here we go with pronunciation. <laughs> The Hassenflugs. We've, we've come across them. The Haxthausens. Yep. The Drosthulschofs. Okay. And the Wilds. The Wilds. Mm. Mm. The Wilds lived across the street from the Grimm's in Kassel. Mr. Wilde owned the local apothecary. 
and he had six daughters. So the, the grim sister, Lot, became friends with the wild girls because <laughs> uh, she preferred to be in a house full of girls than sure. in a house with all her brothers, her five brothers. And eventually Wilhelm formed a reading circle with the wilds uh, where the wild girls would tell them fairy tales that they remembered. Amazing. They did do a bit of traveling, though, to get their stories. A couple of episodes of note. <laughs> Wilhelm picked up a few stories by exchanging his trousers with an old soldier called Kraus. What? They swapped trousers? <laughs> no, he gave him... <laughs> oh, right. He, he gave, gave him his trousers for some stories. Yeah. <laughs> and those, uh, two of those stories were Old Sultan and the Knapsack, the Hat and the Horn. Oh, so we have those, yeah. thanks, thanks to Wilhelm's to trousers. <laughs> I'd say that's a fair trade. And he just wanders home in his pants. with like, I've got some stories. <laughs> Jacob. <laughs> Look at this. He also once tricked an old woman into telling her grandchildren's stories, which he listened in on secretly because <laughs> she was too uh, shy to tell him directly. Oh, that's She true. thought it was silly. So by hook or by crook, they got their stories. Yeah. But this was all just one project among many. And in 1811, they both published their first books separately. Jacob's was a book on the history of German master singers, and Wilhelm's was a translation of Danish ballads. Okay, lovely. So they're doing other stuff. Yeah. I totted it up, and between them, they published around 40 books in their life, some separately and some together. Okay. Things start to get fraught and competitive with their friend Brentano. Remember him from uni? Boy's Magic Horn. Oh, yeah, Magic Hall Brentano. Man. Yep. He decided to do a fairy tale book himself because uh, he claimed the Brothers Grimm's one was boring. <laughs> <laughs> boring. He, he liked to zhuzh up the stories sure. a bit, make them a bit more fun. Yeah. But they remained friends, and uh, in 1810, the Grimm's sent their manuscripts of all the folk tales they'd collected so far to Brentano at his request. He asked if he could have a look at it. <gasps> Fortunately, though, they made a copy of it before they sent it. Which is lucky because he never returned it. Yeah. And it disappeared from history until it was discovered in 1929 in the library of an old French abbey. And what's amazing about that is we've lost the copy that the Grimm's made and we've now found the lost Brentano copy. Wow. That's amazing. At some point, Arnim went to visit them. Yeah. Also of uh, Boy's Magic Horn fame. Yep. He said, guys, you're taking forever and you're being too perfectionist with your fairy tales. And he sat down to read what they've got so far. So picture the scene. Okay. Mm -hmm. Arnim has a pet canary that sits on his head. So while he was reading the manuscript of the folk ta the fairy tales, he had a pet canary on his head reading the fairy tales while the brothers are looking on anxiously. Just a slightly insane scene. That's bizarre. Arnim finished it. He said, lads, this is top notch. I'm going to go to Berlin and get you a publisher because we need to get this done now. So yeah. Just finish. It's ready. Yeah. And on the 20th of December, 1812, after six years of work, finally, Kinder und Hausmerken was officially published and for sale. It was dedicated to Arnim's wife, also their good friend, Frau Bettina Arnim, and uh, their son, little Johannes. So the, book, the fairy tales is dedicated to Bettina Arnim. Oh, that's nice. And on Christmas Day, Arnim gave, uh, like, as a surprise, he gave her a copy uh, bound in leather of the book. Oh, that's lovely, had, yeah. Uh, her, was dedicated to her. That's that great. Lovely? That's really nice. The book was an instant sensation. Yeah. All 900 New copies. New York Times bestseller. 
All 900 copies sold out on first printing. So they're now successful authors. They've hit the big time. Yeah. However, their publisher was a chap named Rymar, and he was a wily cat. Uh-oh. And they, they stupidly had no written contract, just a gentleman's agreement. Jacob, mate, you studied on, law. I know. Come on. We know you didn't enjoy studying <laughs> law. <laughs> you must have learned something. Rymar basically messed them around, yeah. and they constantly had to chase him for payments. They made a pittance in royalties compared to how much the publisher made. And eventually for the third edition, they switched publishers. Yeah. So they did not become rich off their mega hit book. <sighs> what a shame. German liberation. Christmas 1812 was a lovely moment for the Grimm's. Fairy tales is out. Huge success. But a lot of people were not having a jolly time, Adam. Who wasn't having a jolly time? Well, I mean, June 1812 is probably... Uh, Best known to American listeners as the start of the US-UK war. Oh, the war of 1812, so named, yes. Yeah, you know, the British are coming. So they're not having a good time in America. No. Over here, though, that same month of the same year, June 1812, Napoleon, riding high in Europe, Britain tied up in America, he marched 600,000 troops into Russia in one of the greatest military disasters in history. Right. Because isn't this the famous thing? Do not invade Russia yeah. in the winter. Or ever. And the, the troops just couldn't survive the harsh Russian winters, could they? Do you want some quick history? Give it to me. Do you want the quick version of that? Yeah, give it to me rapid style. Come All on, right. come on. Napoleon's marching 600,000 people in. Sure. The Russians just retreated, destroying supplies as they went. Yep. In September, Napoleon marched into an abandoned Moscow. So he got to <gasps> Moscow. Da, da, da. So he gets there and it's like, where is everyone? Saboteurs then come in and burn it to the ground. Woo. They just set fire to Moscow. So it's a bit of a Pyrrhic victory. Yeah, I, I mean, would say so. Quite a substantially Pyrrhic victory. Yeah. Well, not, not only deserted, but burning Moscow. Yeah, yeah. and it's cold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, Napoleon thinks, hmm, I should probably leave. <laughs> but unfortunately, an unusually harsh winter had set in yes. early. Uh-oh. With temperatures as low as minus 35 degrees Celsius. <laughs> that's horrendous. <laughs> I'm all for cold weather, but that's too cold. On the retreat back to France, he was pursued by the Russians, who were just picking people off at the back. Yeah. Disease, starvation, and uh, exposure yeah, of course. to the cold. Yeah, big one. By the time he got out, only 85,000 made it back. That's not great. At least 370,000 had died. 370,000. Yeah. That's just... It's too much for it's the brain. Staggering, and and I think what makes it even more incredible is you put it in the context of that time. Yeah. You know, populations weren't that big, armies no, weren't no, no. that like. Absolutely. That's incredible, and quite a massive blunder for him. Uh, so, Jerome, remember Jerome, King of I Westphalia. I do remember Jerome. Yep, Jacob's boss. He'd gone part of the way to Russia, uh, but he had <laughs> he'd had an argument with his brother uh, Napoleon, and he returned home sulking. Good job he did. When the Grand Army disintegrated in Russia, Jerome gets jittery. Mm-hmm. He knows it's bad. He starts gathering his loot. He ordered Jacob to pack up all the books from the library, which was just torture to Jacob, yeah. who tried to persuade him that it's not worth it, Jerome. Yeah. You know, these are just worthless books. You don't yeah, want to take them to France. After Russia, Napoleon did manage to quickly raise a fresh army of about 200,000, and he marched straight back into Germany. So the year immediately following the fairy tale publication, Germany was a full-on war zone. Masses of battles all over the shop. Yeah. 
But things slowly start to go wrong for the French. Russian troops eventually marched into Westphalia and they laid siege to Kassel. Jerome fled the city and eventually the Russians peacefully entered Kassel to scenes of euphoria. Hess is free. The, when the Russians came, because they still saw them as a liberating force. Yeah. yeah. The French were still going, however, and things crescendoed at the Battle of Leipzig, known uh -huh. as the Battle of Nations, about right. 150 miles from Kassel, where the brothers are. A defeated Napoleon fled back to France, quick smart. Germany is free. Yay. Napoleon is out of there. Woohoo! So Kassel's free. There's Russian soldiers in the city, and the Grimms housed seven rowdy Russian soldiers in their house. Yeah who would just drink and dance and sing while the brothers were working at their desks in the next room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Count returned back to Cassel, the ruler, with the brother's aunt. The younger brothers, Karl and Ludwig, joined the Free Hessian Army, and Wilhelm and Jacob published a book, and the profits were donated to the military campaign against Napoleon. Oh, nice. Yeah. Jacob was then given a big new job. He was to join the Hessian Peace Delegation on their mission to Paris to sue for peace. <laughs> wow. So, in early 1814, Jacob set off for Paris. The mission had to zigzag between uh, the battles that were being fought. They had to go down into Switzerland at one point and then come back up into <laughs> France. Finally, the Allies invaded France, yeah. ending in Napoleon's abdication. Yes. Jacob and his party waited in Dijon until word came through of the final defeat. And then they entered Paris, where Jacob was tasked with finding the lost treasures of Hesse that had been stolen during the occupation. So, at this point, is Germany a, a nation state? That is an excellent point, Adam, and rather prescient, because in the summer, Jacob was off on another diplomatic mission, this time to the Congress of Vienna. Oh, okay. Do you want some quick-fire history on the Please Congress do. of Vienna? So, yeah. the Congress of Vienna is where the big powers, Russia... Austria, Britain, Prussia, and some other ones, thrashed out the new European order. The Germanic Confederation emerged to replace the Confederation of the Rhine, which Napoleon's country. Right. But Austria and Prussia were powerful enough to go out on their own, so they weren't involved. So kind of Western Germany now became the Germanic Confederation, which is made up of 39 smaller states. One of which is Hesse. Yes. Yeah. I don't want to ruin the story, but I can tell you how Germany became Germany later if you want. I can't wait. So that's the Congress of Vienna. It's kind of like the Versailles of the day. Yep, that's kind of what I was thinking of. Except this one, the Congress created a lasting peace in Europe. It's just been like, it's been total war for, for the last 20 time. years. Yeah. yeah. And now the big powers don't fight each other anymore. Yeah. But what emerged is what's known as the conservative order. A reinstatement of the old aristocracies based on kind of hierarchy and tradition. So the values of democracy and equality that are inherent in the French Revolution and the American revolutions mm -hmm. were played down, which is going to cause trouble shortly. Okay. Keep an eye on that. I'll keep, keep, my, uh, keep that in mind. And Jacob was right in the thick of this for two years and not impressed with any of it. He wrote Wilhelm, of the Congress, there is not much good to report. One, nothing happens. <laughs> or two, what does is underhanded, petty, vulgar, and moribund. And even worse, he wasn't allowed to check out books from the Vienna Library. Oh, that's rubbish. Did he not have a library card? <laughs> that's really annoying. Meanwhile, Wilhelm finally got a job at the library in Kassel, 
He plugs away at the fairy tales, visiting the sources, editing them. Finally, in the winter of 1815, Jacob headed back to settling Cassell, writing to Wilhelm, happy that with every step I'm getting nearer to you. Oh, isn't that sweet? They're so cute. <laughs> so cute together. Peace and publishing. And now begins the happiest time in their lives. Jacob got a job in Wilhelm's library. So they're now working together, happily nice. nose deep in books all the time, writing and researching away in their shared study. Basically, over the next 15 years in Castle, they churned out books, got showered with awards, honorary doctorates, membership of elite academies. Oh, just having a good it's time. It's all just come up roses, hasn't it? Here, Wilhelm essentially took over the fairy tales, and Jacob blossomed into a preeminent linguist. Oh, okay. The second edition of The Fairy Tales appeared in 1819. That same year, Jacob published his foundational runaway hit, German Grammar, which outsold even the fairy tales. What? Yeah. People are more into their grammar than their, <laughs> than fairy, their fairy tales. tales. We're doing the wrong podcast. Mate. I know. Welcome to <laughs> Grammar Reading. <laughs> now, we mock. We may mock grammar, yeah. but... Uh, there's some pretty cool stuff in there. Is there? Would you like to hear a little bit about what Jacob uh, worked on? Let's do it. So German grammar contained some huge leaps forward in the study of language. So Jacob Grimm is really well known in the field of linguistics, mm -hmm. even today. His most famous breakthrough is what's known as Grimm's Law. Grimm's Law? Also known as the Germanic sound shift. Okay. Right. Do you want to know what Grimm's Law is? Yeah, please. What's Grimm's Law? Really simply... It's to do with the evolution of language. There's a theory that there's a huge group of languages that are all interrelated, from like India to Ireland and Portugal. Mm -hmm. all, all our languages are connected. For example, in Spanish, mother is mama. In Hindi, it's man. So man, yeah. mama, you can hear they're connected, right? The theory here is that there was an original Indo-European language, that all uh, this huge group of languages all have one common ancestor. Yeah. And therefore also that we're all from one tribe originally. Sure. What Jacob discovered, so that's already a theory. Yeah. But what Jacob discovered was that at some point in the evolution of Germanic languages, the P sound shifted to an F. So if you compare Latin languages to Germanic ones, so Latin languages think Latin, yeah. uh, French, Spanish, Germanic, you've got German and English, for example. Take the English word foot. In German, fuß. In Latin, pede. Yeah. And in French, pied. Also, father, papa, F, P. Yeah. Fish is a good one. In German, fish. <laughs> yeah. In French, poisson. Poisson. Uh, Italian, pesce. So you've got Pesh, F yeah. and P. So Jacob found that at some point in history, in Germanic tribes, there was this FP shift that occurred. Mm -hmm. So P and F is strikingly different, but the actual sound, P and F, is quite similar. Yes, okay. So that's just one example out of nine sound shifts that he discovered. That's a part of Grimm's Law. Yeah. Right. He literally compared thousands of words, and he did it very scientifically, so you can actually... It's a bit beyond me, but you can reverse engineer it to work out how words would have sounded. That's fascinating, yeah. To think that 
obviously he would be known yeah. for his fairy tales, but actually he's got this whole other yeah. legacy. Yeah, he's a preeminent linguist. So they're living in Castle, it's all lovely, publishing away, working in the library. Yep. Around this time, Wilhelm made an intellectual enemy. Uh-oh. One Professor Rommel. <laughs> I am Rommel. <laughs> um, so both Rommel, or Rommel, and Wilhelm are into runes. You know runes, right? The old, uh, the old script, the old symbols. Yeah, the old symboly scripty. Yeah. Wilhelm gets invited to examine some mysterious markings at an excavation to see if they're runes. Yep. And Rommel is turned away because Wilhelm's there doing it. And he doesn't take too kindly to that. He doesn't, but he makes a statement anyway, a public statement, Rommel. <laughs> I'd like to issue... <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, he's, uh, he wants the limelight. Mm-hmm. So he hasn't even seen them. So he, so he organises a press conference. He, he organises a press conference <laughs> and he says they were indeed runic. Probably a magic spell. Okay. So he's said this publicly. Wilhelm, however, has actually examined them. Yeah. And he determined that they weren't runes. Making Rommel look a little bit stupid. Uh-oh. And very angry. Oh, snap. Oh, you got done. Oh, <laughs> You've been grimmed. fired. <laughs> um... Hmm. So that's happened. Okay, just okay. that's happened. Yeah, just keep background. that keep yeah. that in your back pocket. Yeah. So yeah, as I say, the brothers keep working away, publishing stuff. Wilhelm published a book on runes, obviously, obviously. in eighteen twenty one. In eighteen twenty three, the fairy tale book was for the first time translated. In England, a short collection of selected tales with illustrations appeared <gasps> by the well-known Edgar Taylor. Edgar Taylor. Fans of the podcast will know Edgar Taylor. Yeah. This inspired the Brothers Grimm. They said that English is very well suited for fairy tales. It's very concise and fluent, unlike High German. They then published their own short collection of 50 tales, rather than like 200, without academic notes, and for the first time ever, featuring illustrations. So this is less of a book for academics and this is like exactly. here is a fun bit of entertainment yeah, yeah absolutely in the way that we know fairy tale books today and as i said had illustrations for the first time provided by their own brother ludwig hey, hey ludwig's, in the ludwig. ludwig's back in the story <laughs> that's cool that's good to get a third that's brother nice, involved. Isn't it? yeah in other news wilhelm was quite a hit with the ladies was he now in general yeah Ooh. but in 1825 he married the youngest of the Wilde sisters. <gasps> He's married a Wilde. Henriette Dorothea Wilde, known as Dorchen. Dorchen. So Dorchen Wilde, Dorchen Grimm. Dorchen Grimm. He wrote to a friend, I have the premonition that I'm going to be happy for the rest of my life. Aww. She is soulful, natural, understanding and bright. She takes joy in the world and is nonetheless prepared in every moment to give herself over to something higher and better. Isn't that lovely? Beautiful letters arrive. It's getting a bit teary in the castle. I hope one day someone writes something like that about me. I will, Matt. Oh, good. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> what, what a sweetheart, sweetheart Wilhelm. 
A year later, Dorchin gave birth to a boy they named Jacob. Oh, that's nice. Sweet. But sadly, he didn't make it to a year old. Oh, that's less that's, that's nice. That's less nice. In his final moments, Uncle Jacob, Jacob Grimm, sat by his, the boy's bed for 12 hours. Oh. Straight. How lovely. But in 1828, they have another son, Herman, who does survive. Yay so for Herman. Nice. I know what you're thinking, Adam. Yeah. But Any ladies for Jacob? No ladies for Jacob. No. Except kind of Dorchin. In whoa, a way. whoa, hang well, on a second. No, okay, all right, whoa. let me... So you might have been worrying that this is the end for the dynamic duo, yeah. right? One of them gets married, they spend less time together. Yeah. yeah. No, you'd be wrong if you thought that. They would all three live together with the kids for the rest of their lives. And Dorchin often jokes about having two husbands. Mm, so That's read, a weird read joke. Read into that what you like. Can I close the door on that and never think about that? They're basically like the same person. And then that's really weird. Because I've always, I felt like maybe in a lot of people's minds and in my mind, like, you know, they would have had two very different lives and they just wrote fairy tales yeah. together. No, it turns out um, Wilhelm's wife jokes about the fact that she has two husbands because yeah. they're so inseparable. Because they yeah. come as a package deal. Buy one, get Jacob free. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> so things are ticking along. But Ramel is rubbing his hands in the background, Adam, plotting uh -oh. away. Over the years, he'd been made a nobleman and wormed his way into Count Wilhelm's inner circle, right? No. In January 1829, the first librarian of Cassell died. He was basically Jacob's boss, the head librarian. Yep. Jacob applied for his job, and Wilhelm applied for Jacob's job. The Count, however, rejected their applications and instead appointed to the post his friend, Professor Rommel. No! <laughs> <laughs> this is like I have bested you, Wilhelm. <laughs> oh. A really pedestrian James Bond sort of thing. Okay. Deeply upset. That's awful. The brothers applied for work as librarians at the University of Göttingen in neighbouring Hanover province because the university had made overtures to them, so they had connections there. Okay. On receiving their resignations, the Count of Hesse said, The Grimms are leaving. What a loss. They've never done anything for me. A little later, however, the Count was hosting a dinner and the Saxon ambassador was there and he commented, you know, just off the cuff, commented to the Count how lucky he was to have two such famous scholars as the Grimms. Uh oh, that's a little bit embarrassing. Count Wilhelm was shocked and he asked Rommel if it's true that the brothers were so famous, to which a sheepish Rommel had to concede. Count Wilhelm immediately tried to keep the Grimms, offering them the jobs, plus a large salary increase, hey. basically firing Rommel. <laughs> but Adam, our noble brothers had already accepted jobs, and they don't go back on their words. No, they don't. They felt duty-bound to leave. So even though they don't want to leave, they feel like they have to leave. Yeah, and presumably that a little bit of it is like, okay, great position, but you stabbed yeah. us in the back and it's true, yeah. you're dead to us now. So yeah, it's probably for the best. Yeah. They're now around 44, 45, oh, and okay. starting a new adventure. Woohoo! Gottingen and exile. Gottingen, a lovely town on a hill in the neighbouring kingdom of Hanover. So it's just next door to Hesse. Mm -hmm. uh, the brothers were employed as librarians at the university, and Jacob was also a lecturer of philology. Ah, philology, different to philosophy. Very different. Yeah. It's about language, basically. It's okay. about the history of language. Okay. Things get off to an inauspicious start. Mm -hmm. First of all, they actually had to work in this job. 
Oh no! Unlike when they're in the library just researching. No. <laughs> they really don't like being outside their native Hess, and Jacob does not take to lecturing. The town and area are far inferior to our native soil, and there is something disturbing about the fact that the faces of the people one comes most into contact with, namely students, change every year, which does not appeal to me. Lecturing gives me little pleasure and much trouble. I learn nothing from doing this. Stepping up to the lectern has something theatrical about it and is repugnant to me. <laughs> so, a bit strong. So Jacob's not taken no. to teaching. Things get worse, though. Oh in 1831, Wilhelm was hit with a bad case of pneumonia to no. the point it seemed that he'd die. I remember his father died of pneumonia yeah. as well. The university generously made Wilhelm a professor because he's only a librarian. Okay. So that if he did die, Dorchen would get a pension to live on. Because nice. as a librarian, That's very, she wouldn't. Yeah. Very good, it's isn't magnanimous, it? isn't it? Yeah. But he got better and now, unfortunately, has to teach classes because he's a professor. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> but it turns out he's much better at this than Jacob. Uh-huh. His medieval German poetry class had more than <laughs> double as many sign-ups as when Jacob ran it. <laughs> oh, awkward. That's really awkward. I didn't get that class in university. Medieval German poetry. Have you ever been to a medieval German poetry slam evening? It's great. <laughs> <laughs> what, in the back of like a, a cafe? Yeah. Yeah, maybe Some once like or twice. Once or twice. Dingy pub or something, yeah. Wilhelm and Dorchen have two more children after Hermann, a son called Rudolf and a daughter called Auguste. Auguste. So things are ticking along. However, a teenage girl in England is about to unwittingly transform their lives and arguably the future of Germany. Okay. Might be being a little bit dramatic there. Possibly. Well, we'll see. Who's this teenager? Well, back, forget England for now. Back in Hanover, in 1833, the Hanoverian Parliament approved a new liberal constitution. Those employed by the state were required to swear an oath of allegiance to the constitution. So, Jacob and Wilhelm swore an oath of allegiance to a constitution. Right. Okay, just keep that in mind. Okay, okay. Fun fact... Also in 1833, Jacob was appointed privy councillor to the King of Hanover, a certain William. At the time, the King of Hanover also happened to be the King of England, the Hanoverians. Right. So what that means is Jacob was technically an advisor of King William IV of England. Jacob was the advisor <laughs> of the English so king. insane. A man known for enjoying sailing and having a pineapple-shaped head. I swear you know about William. pineapple head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? Why is Jacob an advisor to the English king? I did not see that coming. So to understand why the king of Hanover is the king of England, to go back about 100 years, George I of Hanover became king of England when Queen Anne, Olivia Colman in The Favourite, when she died, the closest in line to the English throne that wasn't Catholic was George. Oh, yeah. Parliament passed over 50 other people in the line to succession. Because they were Catholic and obviously the UK, Britain has sort of flitted back and forth throughout mm. the ages between Catholic and Protestant. It's obviously yeah. a Protestant times. Absolutely. King here is the key word. So William IV was the third and last surviving son of George III. Despite having 10 children with his mistress, he had no legitimate children. So when he died... His 18-year-old niece, Victoria... I was going to say... She became Queen Victoria of England in 1837. Yep. So, technically, Jacob should now be advising Queen Victoria. But, because of ancient Hanoverian laws, women were barred from succession in Hanover, unlike in England. Therefore, while Victoria took over in England, Victoria's uncle, Ernst Augustus, 
Duke of Cumberland, became the King of Hanover. <laughs> That's it's so confusing. So women are barred from succession in Hanover. Yeah, because of the differing rules in England and Hanover, mm-hmm. it, there it's caused this split. Yeah. Really bizarre. And uh, Ernst, we'll call him Cumberland, the Duke of Cumberland. He took over in Hanover. So, and he's, yeah. you know, he's an Englishman, basically, yeah. but he moved over. Cumberland was old school nobility. And he immediately revoked the liberal constitution, Uh-oh. prorogued, and then dissolved parliament. Well, as we know from recent history, and <laughs> that's yeah. not okay. Don't prorogue parliament, no. guys. He then required a personal pledge of allegiance. This puts Jacob and Wilhelm in a bit of a pickle. They pledged allegiance to the constitution. Before God. Uh-oh. And although they are far from liberal, they couldn't abide this level of despotism. Nor could five other professors from the university, and together they informed the king that they would not revoke their pledge to the 1833 Uh-oh. constitution. They became known as the Göttingen Seven, famous across Germany for standing up to the conservative order. Wow. Jacob wrote, The world is full of men who think and teach what is right, but as soon as they are called upon to act, they are assailed by doubts and fears. Oh, so he's, he's basically saying, you really need to put your money where your mouth is. Exactly. Yeah. They were all immediately fired. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but the three who were identified as leaders, which included Jacob were also expelled from the country by royal decree. This sparked massive student protests. 50 students were arrested and martial law was declared. Whoa. So it's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. But a bit of context. Uh, In France, there were also protests that were sparked by the king acting in a similarly despotic manner. Mm -hmm. And these protests were spreading over Europe. So tensions were already high. But yeah, they've still got to go. So the the three uh, packed up to leave the country. On 17th of December, 1837, 300 students walked 20 miles behind the carriage of Jacob and the two other expelled leaders as it trundled along the border to Hesse. What a sight. They got to the bridge to cross out of Hanover into Hesse, and the students symbolically dragged the carriage over the bridge into Hesse with the professors in it. Oh, wow. They all then gathered at the local pub in the village of Witzenhausen, where the students threw a massive big party for their heroes. Hey. This became famous, known as the Witzenhausen Escort. And there was even a metal toy was made of the scene. Of the students of dragging the, the yeah. uh, carriage. That's amazing. I've got to be honest, though. Yeah. A little bit surprised at Wilhelm. They, they stick together, don't they? He's not forced to leave the country, but you thought he'd be like, I'm coming with you, brother. Nah. Yeah. Well, he does, eventually. Uh-huh. So... Jacob goes back to Cassell to live with Ludwig, who lives in their old flat. Right. And he's now a professor of art at the University of Cassell. Oh, lovely. And uh, eventually, yeah, Wilhelm moves back with Dorchen and the kids, and they take the flat underneath Ludwig. So it's all big, one big happy family. Lovely. But all of them, the seven professors, struggled to find any work because the nobility were angry with them, and the universities were nervous. Mm-hmm. But ordinary people from across Germany sent the seven money to keep going. Oh, that's nice. They're sort of like folk heroes. Absolutely. Yeah. So they're back in Cassel. Berlin and a dictionary. So they're living in Cassel. Nothing going on. One day, an offer came to them from a publisher in Saxony. Would you boys like to write a German dictionary? <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. So they're now writing a German dictionary. Brilliant. And it's, uh, it's not just any old dictionary, like 
this is the definition of a word, it's a super special dictionary that shows how language and the use of words has evolved over time. Oh, so it's wow. almost like each word has a whole like history. Right. That's quite involved. Yeah, it's quite an undertaking. Yeah. Their good friend Arnim sadly died in 1833, oh, no. back when they were at the university. But his wife and their close friend, Bettina, who they dedicated the fairy tale book yep. to, wanted the brothers to come live in Berlin. She's like, guys, this is where it's at. Come on. Berlin is the place. Yeah, boy. Jacob was curious, yep. but wary after what happened in Gottingen. And he wanted a direct invitation from the king. So he wants to be personally invited oh, by wow. the king. So he's kind of protected. Okay. Bettina is a bit of a high flyer and she uses her contacts and gets the Prussian Minister of Education to personally invite the brothers, stating that it's the king's wish. Oh, wow. The offer is that they would be able to complete their dictionary with opportunities to lecture. And Jacob's like, no. <laughs> and they'll have a decent stipend provided by the state. Oh, lovely. Great so Jacob great. finally responded, we accept the summons of the king. And off they go to Berlin. Off March 1841, the family moved to Berlin, Prussia. Picture Berlin, Adam, 1841. It's like becoming fast becoming a cultural, artistic, intellectual hub in yeah. Europe. Yeah, lots of clubs that open very late. Lots of clubs, lots of uh, pop-up restaurants, yeah. really good dining scene. Lots of startups there. Oh, yeah, big time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just happening. It's, it's happening the place. place. It's the place to be. But the, you know, the brothers, as, as we've seen, are kind of, you know, they're quiet men yeah, and they sure. struggle with the hustle and the bustle in the big do. city. Yeah. Their fame was also sky high at this point. Jacob's first public lecture was attended by hundreds who gave him a standing ovation when he walked into the auditorium. Oh, wow. Before he'd even said anything. <laughs> they were wined and dined by royalty and celebrities. People came to sing outside their balcony on their birthdays. I'm not sure I'd like that. Hans Christian Andersen even came from Denmark to visit them. Wow. And had an excruciatingly awkward encounter with Jacob. No. Why? Uh, well, we'll go into that in the Patreon podcast, I think. Okay. Because it's great, but we don't really have uh, time. <laughs> I'm just imagining it's like, he's polite. And he's like, oh, I'm a big fan of your work. And he's like, what's your favorite? And he's like. <laughs> <laughs> You're not far off. <laughs> You're not far off, mate. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> So, for the first time, they've got decent wages, and they're not at odds with the ruling establishment. Mm -hmm. This is the first time in their life that's been the case. Oh, wow. So, th things are great for them. Things are good, yeah. The accolades continue to pile up. France gave Jacob the Cross of the Legion of Honor. England made them both members of the Philological Society. And the US even admitted Jacob as a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Wow, that's yeah. so cool. They've got international fame. Yeah. Right. It's time for your final donning of your history hat, Adam. Okay. They were entangled in the febrile politics of the era one more time. Mm -hmm. In 1848, the March Revolution began in Germany, sparked once again by unrest in Paris. Across all of Europe, there was growing demand for crazy things, right? Free press. That's mental. Representative parliaments. Are you nuts? Weird, isn't it? Trial by jury. Oh, come on, That's guys. just decadent. Yeah. Limitation on royal powers. Oh, for goodness I mean, sake. For Where's goodness it going to end? sake. Where is it? It's a slippery <laughs> slope, guys. Yeah. So it's basically a reaction to the conservative post-Napoleonic order. Yeah. In German-speaking states, this was all tied up with pan-Germanism as well. The desire to create a German nation. So this liberal movement was... Pan-Germanism was a part of that. Okay. 
because there isn't a Germany yet, as no. we were talking about. But there's a sense of Germanness, which in part has been fostered by Kinder and Hausmerken. Yeah. So this is all going on. The March revolutions began. Yep. In Berlin, the city is jittery. Things are tense, and they quickly escalate. Protesters hit the street on March 18th. Two shots were fired by soldiers. Uh-oh. And vicious fighting broke out and lasted through the night. By the morning, hundreds had been killed on the streets of Berlin. In a letter to Ludwig, Wilhelm wrote, I have never spent a day in such fear and emotion. The clattering volleys from rifles and the booming of cannons and shells were quite horrible, especially at night. We naturally stayed up the whole night. So they can hear it, like, yeah. just out, literally yeah, outside yeah. their window, it's happening. The next day, King Friedrich was horrified. He ordered the soldiers, gow the city. Yeah. And he attended the mass funeral, wearing the revolutionary tricolours of the protesters, gold, red, and black. Gold, red, and black. Which you might recognise from the German flag. Yes, I quite possibly do. <laughs> Friedrich then caved into the demands of the protesters, and he established a new elected Prussian parliament in Berlin. Liberalism's on the rise. Mm -hmm. Emboldened, an ambitious project was started by the protesters. In Frankfurt, they set up a German National Assembly to try and write a German constitution for the whole nation. Jacob was chosen to join the assembly. No way. So this is like the German... I don't know, Founding Fathers or like the Philadelphia <laughs> Convention or something. Well, that's what I got excited about. Yeah. I was like, uh, is Jacob going to be a, like a Founding Father? Like yeah. one of the first He's ever... like the German Ben yeah. Franklin or something. Not quite. Oh, come <laughs> on. That was exciting. So the German Assembly is there. It's getting together. But there are so many academic types that the Assembly got the nickname the Professor's Parliament. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and just descended into squabbles. Yeah, uh, they couldn't agree on the division of power and on territorial claims as well was a big issue. You know, what's included? Mm -hmm. What is Germany? Moreover, Prussia and Austria just weren't really involved. Yeah, and if they're not involved, nothing's going to happen. Sure. And as we've seen in Vienna, this sort of nitty gritty political stuff wasn't Jacob's bag. And by August, he thought this is a crock of nonsense, and he resigned. And the first attempt at united Germany failed. Oh, because Jacob went off to read poetry. But back in Berlin, they're still getting involved in the movement. They're getting behind the new Prussian constitution and parliament. Mm -hmm. Because despite being in many ways conservative monarchists, Jacob once wrote to a friend, the older I get, the more democratic I become. They were both fascinated by photography. And mm -hmm. around 1850, there was a photo taken of the two of them. Like an right. actual photograph. That's amazing. Not just a painting. Do you want to see it? Yes, please. This is the brothers around 1850. Yeah. That is incredible. I mean, the fact that I can actually see them, I, that always blows my mind, of early photography. Yeah. Because there's a sense of history being this far off land, and actually there's mm. a, a reasonable portion of it that we can actually physically see, and yeah. it's always mind-blowing. It's like that, um, that thing where like, there's a television show in the 50s where they interview someone who was at the theatre when Lincoln was shot. It's just, just mind-blowing. Wait, what? Yeah, seriously. He's very old. <laughs> but yeah. like it's incredible that's just that blowing. crossover yeah. and um yeah. we have seen this before and actually tried to recreate it <laughs> we did yeah <laughs> yeah the photo on our website is that, that. is us that is in it, that yeah. pose <laughs> <laughs> see we knew what we I were doing anybody, in the beginning i don't think anybody's ever picked up on that yeah it's for the mega fans <laughs> <laughs> which will one day exist yeah that, they'll they'll come <laughs> their dictionary now 
took center stage. And finally, a first edition was published in 1854. A to beer milk. Excuse me? They went from the beginning of A right up to beer milk. Oh, beer milk. Beer milk. Beer milk. I mean, that's not very far. <laughs> to be fair, that was just Jacob because Wilhelm was starting from D. So, A to beer milk. A to In 1859, Wilhelm's eldest son, Hermann, married a girl called Gisela, who was the daughter of Achim and Bettina, their oh, friends. Oh, that's lovely. That autumn, returning from a family holiday, Wilhelm became ill with fever. Oh dear. But he seemed to get better. Yay. He wrote, God be praised. I had really thought it would end fatally, and I still have so much to do. A few months later, however, the fever returned, and at 3 p.m., 16th of December, 1859, with his brother at his side, oh. the youngest brother, Wilhelm, died, aged 73. Oh, he went first. In the eulogy at the funeral, Jacob referred to Wilhelm as his Merkenbruder, his fairy tale brother. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Very on brand as well. <laughs> that's, what, that's what his publicist said. <laughs> it's like, this is I'm a great not, opportunity. I'm not saying that. It's really trite. Let's just say it. Come on. And if you can just get a plug in for the new book, just. Uh, <laughs> By the way, if you if you order the first <laughs> hundred of my new book, you will get a signed copy. Oh no, it's beautiful. No, I mean that's lovely and heartbreaking. They, you know, they spent their whole lives together. Yeah, and then we still they still got Dorchen. Dorchen, yeah. So Jacob's still living with Dorchen. Yep. Finally, a second volume of the dictionary appeared a year after Wilhelm's death. Beer milk to E. Oh, that's good progress. Well, he just linked, he linked up D. with, with uh, Wilhelm's work, yeah. In the dedication of the dictionary, Jacob wrote about his brother. In his gentle and pleasing manner of presentation, he was always superior to me in all that we undertook together. Oh, that's very gracious. Jacob's old now, Adam, and uh, contemplative increasingly. Mm -hmm. He struggled to sleep at night. Years later, a note was found in one of his old coats, written in 1862, reflecting on his thoughts while he lay awake looking at the stars. How beautiful are the long summer days to which men and birds look forward with pleasure. They remind us of our youth when the hours drink in the light and pass slowly. What is left is quickly devoured by the dark of winter and age. Now I shall soon be seventy-eight, and when I lie sleepless in bed I am comforted by the dear light which gives me thoughts and memories. Ah, oh, beautiful. Yeah, they had a way with words. They certainly did. One day in 1863, Jacob was sitting in his chair when he suffered a stroke oh. while leaning on his 31-year-old niece, Auguste. A few days later, on September the 20th, 1863, Jacob looked at his family surrounding him briefly and then passed away, aged 78. And Dorchen died a few years later in 1867. Wow. The brothers are buried next to each other in Berlin. Their gravestones have the simple inscriptions, here lies Wilhelm Grimm, and here lies Jacob Grimm. In his dictionary, Jacob was working through F, and the last word he completed in his dictionary was fruit. Fruit? Fucked. It's his last word. It's his last word. I mean, it could be poetic. Could it? I guess. The could it? The fruit of their life. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Their dictionary was then taken up by others and finally completed 
1961 Whoa. in 32 volumes. But then work began to redo A to Fruit because the Brothers Grimm style was a bit outdated by 1961. Yeah. And that was only completed in 2016. Wow. So, Adam, we have gone from the split of the Roman Empire to 2016. That's not bad. That's not bad. We covered a lot. And that is the life and times of the Brothers Grimm. Wow. Yeah. They've lived quite extraordinary lives. They there is much more to them than just the uh the fairy tales. Oh yeah, absolutely. Kind so of much like more. Insane amounts <laughs> yeah. more. They were just right in the middle of these crazy historical events. And I, I just I love the fact that their kind of personalities are there, that these very sort of shy and retiring professory types. Yeah. The, the kind of the times clash with who they were as people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were, yeah, they became insanely famous as well. Despite being quiet, bookish people. Absolutely. Like, that's great. I found that fascinating. Yeah. It's great to be armed with an understanding of who they were as people. I think it will definitely change how we see the fairy so. tales. Yeah. Going forward. Amazing. And Jacob uh, never had a lady friend. He never did. Wow. No, he like I, I didn't just leave it out. I d- he never did. And there was you you sort of <laughs> tantalizingly <laughs> dropped a little rumor like many episodes ago that he might have had a thing with one of the Hassenflugs or something. Ah, that was Wilhelm. Oh, was that was Wilhelm, was it? Yeah. Right. Okay. As I said, he was a bit of a ladies man. The thing is a lot of um it's been very history heavy, but you kind of we we needed that to make mm-hmm. sense of it, but yeah. that's come at the expense of a lot of the personal relationships. Sure. So possibly in the, the Patreon <laughs> we'll, podcast. We'll I'll have a history of the lady friends of the Grimms. <laughs> of Wilhelm, not Jacob. <laughs> yeah, just Wilhelm. Yeah. Poor old Jacob. <laughs> you seem to have forgotten, Adam, your, uh, your other big question. Germany. When did Germany come about? Yeah. So you had, you had like the Germanic Confederation, and then you had Austria and Prussia. Yep. Prussia and Austria are the big powers, and they are rivals. And... In 1866, Prussia defeated Austria. Right. And then essentially, Prussia absorbed the other parts of Germany into the German Empire, headed by the Prussian Kaiser. Right. And that's why Austria is not part of Germany. Because it was Prussia that conquered the rest of the German-speaking states. Right. It could have been Austria, but it was Prussia. But Austria was strong enough that it stayed on its own. Uh, Okay. It officially became Germany in 1871, I think, around then. So, not even 10 years after the brothers died. Wow, crazy. Became united. Their life and their life span from the Holy Roman Empire to almost the unification of Germany. Yeah. And it's crazy to think that in, you know, the First World War, Germany was, as a country, was like 40, 45 years old. I know. There you go. That is the life of the Brothers Grimm. Been fun? It's been a blast. I'm so glad. And also, I've taken in a lot of information. <laughs> yeah, I'm aware, 
I'm very aware that that was a lot for you to process. <laughs> Still processing, yeah. as I'm sure the listeners are. But okay, um, yeah. I hope it. I hope it was coherent. At it least. was. It certainly was. Yeah. And exciting. The exciting tale of the Grimms. Yeah. What a story. I mean, yeah. People often try and say their life was like a fairy tale. It wasn't. It like wasn't a fairy, a fairy tale. tale no. But it was certainly extraordinary. Certainly so. was. I was, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised when I looked Amazing. into it. Amazing. Incredible people. They weren't just old professors at a uni who just worked on a fairy tale book once. Yeah. They were like mega famous super professors. Yeah. <laughs> mega professors. If you want more background on some of the different historical areas we've covered, I'd like to point you towards Rex Factor for British monarchs, yeah. Totalis Rankium for Roman history, Pontifax for popes, and also the history of English for more on Grimm's law and linguistics in general. Wow. They've all got it covered. They've got it covered. Between us, we've got it covered. We've got history covered. Well, that was fantastic. And uh, epic stuff. We'll be uh, back to normal next time with Fitch's Bird. Fitch's Bird. <laughs> How terribly exciting. What Can't a, wait for what that. a strange name. It's for a very story. strange. Fitch's Bird, aka Fowler's Fowl. Now that uh, that is more interesting to oh, me. Fowler's foul. Fowler's foul. Well, see you then. We'll do. Keep it grim. Bye. Bye. If you'd like to support the podcast, please head over to Patreon.com/GrimReading to find out how, and also see the range of benefits available as a thank you from us. You can, of course, email us at GrimReadingPodcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, at Grim Reading Pod, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook, at Grim Reading. You can find us on Podbean, podbean.com slash grimreading, and we also have a website, grimreading.wordpress.com. Keep it grim. Grim.